There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting for the Matrix on June the 16th. 2010. Now, for newcomers, you must always look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. You'll find hundreds of audios for download of talks I've given over many years, and you should, if possible, download them and save them, because who knows how long they'll be up there with all the new laws that are going into place, never mind the hassle I get from certain servers. Bookmark as well the other sites I've got there. Now, remember, all these sites have the same audios for download, they all have transcripts of a lot of the talks in English for print up. And if you go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu, you'll find the same audios plus transcripts in the various languages of Europe to choose from. So uh, make use of them while you, you have them. And when you're in there, too, remember that you support me. Uh, I don't accept money from advertisers. Most of the hosts do, and that's how they make their living. It's very lucrative. And sometimes you're listening to an hour's ad and you don't even know it if you bring guests on. But I don't do that, so it's up to you to keep me going. The ads on this show are paid by advertisers directly to RBN to pay for the airtime and transmission and their staff and their equipment and their bills. So you have to help me with my bills. Buy the books and discs I have for sale. The books are different. They're not written in the usual linear fashion of so-and-so did this back in 1910, followed by so-and-so and so-and-so. I go through uh, techniques that have been used for thousands of years to control your minds, basically through language and symbolism. It's non-linear, and by reading them, you'll actually start to see things in a different fashion in your daily lives, and you'll start thinking in a non-linear way. You've got to do it because your masters do that, you see. That's the natural way that man should be. We're supposed to be that way. Education stops it. So purchase the books and so on, because that will keep me going. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use personal check. You can use international postal money order from your post office if you want to, or PayPal to donate, or you can use PayPal to order as well. Just send a separate email with the order, name and address, along with the PayPal donation, and I'll get it out to you. Cash is okay as well. Across the rest of the world, same idea, PayPal for donations and for ordering, uh, MoneyGram, Western Union, or cash, as long as you accept cash. And It's a sad case to watch Europe plummeting, but even the U.S. dollar is pretty well on par with Canada, as we fall as well, of course, in Canada. And that's the state of the world today. But it's all planned. I'm not worried about it. What can you do? Because you've never really been in charge of your own existence anyway. You find that the more you study. So help me out, as I say, uh, by donating to me or purchasing. And maybe I'll just trickle on for a little longer. It won't be forever, folks. It will not be forever because I've got a lot of bills here. And this isn't just a one-hour show. I've got so much more to do during the day. So much more from the minute I get up till I go to bed. And then it's all computer work at the weekends too with all the problems you have with computers, upgrades and so on. There's never a break here. And 
you know, to remember information is power and knowledge is power. So those who give you information uh, are generally backed by very powerful people. Uh, that's the mainstream media. And of course, the mainstream also have their counterparts on the, the other side. You've got to be careful because in a true war, and this is a true war, it's always been a war of a few on the minds of the masses. They don't miss anything at all. Nothing is missed whatsoever. And when you're fighting something and you have not been authorized, you come under a lot of fire, uh, even from basic things like servers and satellite uploads, satellite systems, as I have right now. An awful job uploading. Even Yahoo's got me on a choke, and I put the the email from Yahoo telling you that on one of the sites back after these messages. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, most people in the world and so-called developed nations that means the brainwashed nations, because they have all the technology to do so, are bombarded constantly their whole life long with an upgrading process of what's to come. Because ideas are embedded in most of the big movies that are put out there. You know, there have been so many exposés of the Pentagon putting out uh, movies via Hollywood. They work hand in hand all the time, always have, mind you, because we are really brainwashed by fiction. Fiction is something you look at, is something you can take or leave or laugh at or throw away afterwards. And, but you don't really throw anything away. You're downloaded with ideas uh, through the fiction. You're, you don't realize you're being brainwashed with certain things, including the way your behavior is to be altered for the next, the next phase, basically. And I've lived through this long enough to watch it happening. The cultural industry is a very, very important part of the military-industrial complex. And you can weaponize culture as well until it's completely dysfunctional. We already are way past that stage, by the way, augmented by different lectures as children get at a very early age in school to make sure it all works together. And it really has been awfully successful, I've got to admit. Now, as I say, you don't realize you've been brainwashed. Most folk can't even remember the basic themes of things after a few years, but the ideas that were meant to be implanted, embedded in their minds, are stuck there. Because monkey see, monkey do, and we mimic what we're told, especially when we think it's given us another little bit more right or freedom or permission to do something naughty or bad or whatever it happens to be. But we don't realize, too, we're, we're also indoctrinated by the big disaster movies, lots of disaster movies. Now, these disaster movies often don't bring in so much money because... They're so boring and long and drawn out. And from the very earliest times to the present, they're awfully, awfully boring. And uh, they have the same format. The first half hour or or more is meant about giving you the characters and how they're normal Joes and so on, uh, and just living normal Joes' lives and stuff like that. It's awfully tedious. However, this last while, so many movies are churned out to get a big message through to you. And one of them is called The Road. I would never advise anybody to watch it unless you truly are 
uh, a masochist and you like being depressed because that's what it's intended to do. Uh, a a post apocalypse movie, basically. Everything's apocalyptic. Oh, oh, forget it anyway. You know what I mean. But everything is after major changes have taken place and all to do with environment, of course, in the world. And there's not enough food and people turn to cannibalism and all kinds of odd, odd behavior. And they give you these dreary skies because you don't see the sun anymore, kind of like now all the spring. And they, they even use special lens to give you an almost sepia-type tone through them so it's boring. They pick the best lenses for, for to make you depressed, in other words. But one of them is, is the roads. And they've got a lot of big stars popping in for little bits, parts in it, because they all went to get in on the act and do their part. Mind you, they're paid well by the Pentagon. And... Um, that one there would have goes on for ages uh, with no hope really uh, along the way. Terrible, dreary, awful uh, movie. And it's to get you used to the idea that we're on a delicate balance. We've got to listen to the bosses to prevent a big disaster. Uh, and you don't realize, no, the big bosses have been planning big disasters for an awful long time and, and pulling them off too, including world wars. And then there's another one, 2012, same idea. I am legend, the crazies, the thaw, that's a Canadian one, it's even more boring, uh, toxic skies, the, the book of Eli and Legion. They're all along the same idea of uh, apocalypse and, and post-apocalypse and the disasters and the terrible things that will happen afterwards and how delicate your balance is if you can't go to the supermarket. My God, you end up eating each other and all that kind of stuff, you see. Now, you add to it uh, all the hype about global warming, global warming, even though it was reported by insiders in the IPCC that only a couple of dozen scientists uh, who accepted the bribes to go along with it, the rest of them, thousands of them, said no. And But regardless, it doesn't matter. It is the agenda. It's the agreed-upon agenda by the masters. And believe you me, if you go back a 100 years and read their books from the Council on Foreign Relations and so on, you realize they never, ever change their agenda. Once they make a plan, they follow it through to the bitter end, regardless. And even when things are exposed, again, they're masters at this. They've been doing it for so long. Even when things are exposed and their lies are exposed, they know with constant repetition after it and ignoring it, they can once again swing the general public around to accepting it as though it's the truth. They've been at it for so long, you see. So, so long. And they're also going after... See, they take their pulse on the public every day now. Every one of us has got a little avatar inside a Pentagon computer. I've read the articles from the Pentagon about that a couple of years ago. And they take your daily mail, your email, and all your communications, and they update this all the time, and they can predict how you're going to behave and what you're going to do on a Wednesday and who you phone on a Thursday and all that kind of stuff. And then they have cluster idea and investigation to see who your friends are, and then they see what you really have in common, and they sort you into personality types and so on. It's so big and so huge, and it's been here for a long time. And they also keep their pulse on on those who crack up. Crack up, even listen to Patriot Radio, and lots do, to see how you're, you're cracking up and, and what you do when you crack up. And are you sounding like a loony when you start talking about aerial spraying and so on? Because they want that, by the way. And some people actually go overboard with it. They can't put things across in a cohesive fashion. 
they don't realize you can pick, you got, you, if you want to convince something to someone, you, you've got to pick one topic and you stay on it. If you jump from one thing to another, you sound like an utter loony. And so you become an asset to them on the other side. Because you'll help reinforce, that's crazy, that's nonsense stuff, nonsense, for those that want uh, to control. Now, here's an article that goes along this line, you see, because you're also looking at the people who are cracking up. I read an article recently uh, where a young couple had killed themselves and their baby because they thought the world was going to be... I guess they watched all these disaster movies, maybe maybe even the Canadian one, you know, the Thaw. Uh, that would drive anybody to suicide and the road and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, they killed themselves thinking the world was going to be an awful place to live in in, in this post-global warming, famine-ridden, cannibalistic era. Uh, well, here's an article here from Discovery News. Deadly heat waves, home-wrecking hurricanes, neighborhood scorching wildfires. When you stop to think about it, global warming can be downright depressing. Now scientists are starting to validate that feeling. According to accumulating evidence, climate change won't just trigger new cases of stress, anxiety, and depression. People who are, uh, who, who are already have schizophrenia and other serious psychological problems will probably suffer most in the aftermath of natural disasters and extreme weather events. When these events happen, they just know what's going to happen, you see. People with pre-established mental illnesses often have more extreme difficulty coping than the rest of the population. See, the rest of the population are still watching much music, you know, and living out the fantasy lifestyle. And you know what that is, of course. Said Lisa Page, a psychiatrist at King's College London. This is an era, uh, an, an area we may need to think about a little more seriously. Well, they already are, you see. They're doing all this data collection and passing on to the Pentagon. In public health circles and even in climate talk, scientists have looked at a lot, uh, a lot at how climate change might affect physical health by, for example, spurring the spread of malaria, dengue fever, and other infectious diseases. For the most part, though, the experts have made only vague references to the link between climate change and mental health, and even though evidence for such connections is starting to pile up. In a review of the published literature, Page and a colleague found a variety of examples. I wonder who Page is. But, but they, again, you get all these experts, but no names, eh? You see, we don't need them anymore. It's like gods. The gods say this, the gods say that, and we're taught to believe the experts. After natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, for instance, studies have clearly documented a rise in post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression, and other mental disorders. The same symptoms occur during infectious disease outbreaks. In the future, climate models predict more... Well, I guess what they're talking about was the, f- the fake flu one. Folk were panicking. Uh, about the fake flu, wanting their free, their free shots before they ran out, even though they never had. Now they've got millions left over, but we're all paying for it. In the future, climate models predict more destructive storms. That that's their special model. These ones are special computers. They get they feed out the data uh, to, to give them worst possible scenarios. You can make any computer do that if you design it that way. You know. In the future, climate models predict more destructive storms, more floods, more droughts, and more diseases. In turn, a new study suggests more psychological crisis will follow. It must be an awfully expensive computer to come up with such fantastic and innovative information like that. Heat waves like the one that killed some 70,000 people in Europe in the summer of 2003, but they don't tell you that France had an awful problem with its electric powers, had cut back so much that no one had any cooling. 
Anyway, that doesn't matter, does it? Will also happen more frequently, last longer, and be more severe in coming years. The mentally ill will be hard as hit by these events. I'd say the poor will, because it won't afford any fans or anything. Paid suspects, because they're more likely to live in substandard housing without air conditioning or other amenities. Many psychotropic medications also increase the risk of dying from heat-related complications. So now you know, that stuff will kill you. So does substance abuse, which is common among people with mental illnesses. People with pre-existing mental challenges will probably also have an extra hard time dealing with other forecasted consequences of climate change. You've got climate change highlighted so many times, you can go and see what climate change is, including the sinking of coastlines and mass migration away from flooded shores. Then there's a general sense of sadness. Oh, sadness. That can come from reading about climate change again and again and recognizing that the world is changing. No kidding. No kidding. It's just like these disaster movies. And yeah, I've had rain for two years straight. And it's pouring rain now too, mind you. Haven't we seen much summer? Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. Reading an article about how bad it's going to get from the Mental Health Association because they're all in on the act, you see, and getting funded to do research and, and fill their pockets with more, more funding and so on. It's just bucks all around, really, when they create these things that are going to happen, scenarios like science fiction. And it says here, It's when you realize things aren't the way they used to be, said Giovanni Leonardi, an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. It's a sad state to go outside and it's sunny and you, and you worry about it. So you get very worried about it when they see the sun now. That, that mind you, you should take a photograph when you do because there's so many planes spraying the skies. Have been for 12 years now that we hardly ever really see it except through this mush, you know. It says we didn't used to worry about it being sunny, it says. Nope. Acknowledging the mental challenges involved in climate change should hopefully help public health officials prepare for them. Well, what are they going to do? Give us umbrellas or sunshades or something? Your officials are our answer? Government officials are your answer? Really? Help? Help? Anyway, recognition of the issue is the first step towards addressing the problem. So believing in it is the first step, you see. Leonardo said it's the first step towards helping ourselves to cope with it. And so that's the answer. You've got to understand it and accept it. And, uh, and, and that's all there is to it. And then you'll be healthy and then you'll do all the right things when you're told to, like pay through the nose to have some heat in your home and everything else that you need to just to exist. Mind you, the banks will lap it up for you and, and use that money responsibly, of course, as they always have done before. Now, Folk always wonder how long this goes on, this big agenda, and who's in it, and all the rest of it. And they don't understand. You've got to read H.G. Wells' books. Uh, the Outline of History was, was one good book uh, with part one and two because he gives you the Fabian outline of the types of the race, he calls it, that will survive and be brought through where the others die off. And it was written a long, long time ago. It was based on eugenics, of course. And he tells you the different groups who've proven themselves down through time as survivors who will be in on it. And, of course, a lot of this was also exposed by Professor Carl Quigley, who believed in this system that that ruled the world and does rule the world and their agenda. And from the Wise Up Journal, it says here, how the world operates by President Wilson 
and respected historian Quigley. Now, Wilson was a front man, as they all are presidents are front men, you see, uh, for the advisors behind them. And you'll find that Colonel Mandus Mandel House, who was not a colonel, it was an honorary title, uh, he was the, he was a go-between for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, uh, the Milner Group, and Lord Grey, uh, who was for Britain, you see, to bring in the U.S. system to make sure it was the same system as Britain. And Wilson was man-picked for the job to be the front. And so they gave the Federal Reserve and the income taxes laws all, all in time for World War I, of course, which they all had planned as well. Anyway, it says here, Rise Up Journal, the 13th of June. Uh, the following extracts are from two books, one by World War I professor, uh, pre- President uh, Woodrow Wilson, and the other from an eminent professor and noted historian Carl Quigley, whom Bill Clinton thanked in his 1992 Presidential Democrat acceptance speech. It was more than that, the Quigley. He was also an advisor to the State Department, the Pentagon, and a whole bunch of government offices and positions on history and uh, ethnology for different cultures that they went to go off and bomb. It says, did these men think childlessly that powerful families have influence over corporate business and governments, or do we believe childlessly that powerful families don't? And here's an extract from Woodrow Wilson's The New Freedom, which was written. By the way, The New Freedom was quoted by, and by George Bush, remember, Jr., when he says he was given you The New Freedom. And I said at the time it was a new definition of freedom, and it was actually from the, the New Freedom book that was outlined back in 1913 by Wilson. It was the front, uh, the front man, as I see, who helped bring in the League of Nations. At least he fronted for it. It says, since I entered politics, I've chiefly had men's views confided to me of privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of somebody and are afraid of something. They know that there's a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they'd better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. Carol Quigley wrote about this power in his history book entitled Tragedy and Hope. But he was not against it, as he stated in the book. He said, I have no aversion to it or most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. And some some extracts from Tragedy and Hope are here. 1966 it was published. Indeed, some of them intended to contribute to both and to allow an alternation of two parties in public office in order to conceal their own influence. So they had two parties, again, to confuse the public inhibit any exhibition of independence by politicians, and allow the electorate to believe that they were exercising their own free choice. In 1924, J.P. Morgan was able to sit back with a feeling of satisfaction to watch a presidential election in which the candidates of both parties were in his sphere of influence. Usually, Morgan had to share his political influence with other sectors of the business oligarchy, especially with the Rockefeller interest, as was done, for example, by dividing the ticket between them. The power of investment bankers over governments. The power of investment bankers over governments rests on a number of factors, of which the most significant, perhaps, is the need for governments to issue short-term treasury bills as well as long-term government bonds. Just as businessmen go to commercial banks for current capital advances to smooth over the discrepancies between their irregular and intermittent incomes and their periodic and persistent outgoes, such as monthly rents, annual mortgage payments, and weekly wages, so government has to go to the merchant bankers 
or institutions controlled them to hide them or tide them over the shallow places caused by irregular tax receipts. Back after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, talking about uh, Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, and other articles from the book put out by President Wilson, who worked for the same boys who still run the world today. Both these guys did, and they were all for it, of course. And this is here um, that the government had to use these banks to basically tide them over when tax receipts were slow in coming in. And they know themselves, of course, the big corporations don't pay taxes. They postpone them for 15, 20 years and then write them off when they move to another country. But that's the corporate welfare. But I mean, they, they get grants given to them whenever they say they're failing. You know, It's a con game. It was set up by them. And there's never been any sort of Republican democracy in the U.S. It was at least from the, the late 1800s onwards. Anyway, it says here, this is so widely accepted even today that in 1961, a Republican investment banker became Secretary of the Treasury in a Democratic administration in Washington without significant comment from any direction because it says previously that they put uh, these guys in charge of a lot of their administrative positions in government, these bankers, these merchant bankers. The key international banking families, the names of some of these banking families are familiar to all of us and should be more so. They include the, the Rehring, Lazard, Erlanger, Warburg, Schroeder, Seligman, the Spires, Mirabod, Malay, Fold, and above all Rothschild and Morgan. They've got the Jacob Schiffs and all the rest of them in there too. Even after these banking families became fully involved in domestic industry by the emergence of financial capitalism, they remained uh, different from ordinary bankers in distinctive ways. Uh, They were cosmopolitan and international. They were close to governments and were particularly concerned with questions of government debts, including foreign government debts, even in areas which seemed at first glance poor risks like Egypt, Persia, Ottoman, Turkey, Imperial China and Latin America. Their interests were almost exclusively in bonds and very rarely in goods, since they admired liquidity and regarded commitments in commodities or even real estate as a first step towards bankruptcy. They were accordingly fanatical devotees of deflation, which they called sound money from its close associations with high interest rates and a high value of money, and of the gold standard which, in their eyes, symbolized and ensured these values. Five, they were almost equally devoted to secrecy and the secret use of financial influence and political life. These bankers came to be called international bankers, and more particularly were known as merchant bankers in England, private bankers in France, and investment bankers in the United States. In all countries, they carried on various kinds of banking and exchange activities, but everywhere they were sharply distinguishable from other more obvious kinds of banks, such as savings banks or commercial banks. The dynasties of international bankers. In time, they brought into their financial network the provincial banking centers, organized as commercial banks and savings banks, as well as insurance companies to form all these 
into a single financial system on an international scale, which manipulated the quantity and flow of money so that they were able to influence, if not control, governments on one side and industries on the other. The men who did this, looking backward towards a period of dynastic monarchy in which they had their own roots, by the way, aspired to establish dynasties of international bankers and were at least successful at this, as they were uh, as were many of the dynastic political rulers. Uh, the greatest of these dynasties, of course, were the descendants of the Meyer Amschel Rothschild of Frankfurt family, whose male descendants for at least two generations generally married first cousins or even nieces. They still do. Rothschild's five sons established the branches in Vienna, London, Naples, and Paris, as well as Frankfurt, cooperated together in ways in which other international banking dynasties copied but rarely excelled. As early as 1909, Walter Rathnow, who was in a position to know since he had inherited from his father control of the German General Electric Company and held scores of directorships himself, said 300 men, all of whom know each other, direct the economic uh, destiny of Europe and choose their successors from amongst themselves. Big banking and business controlled the federal government, the structure of financial controls created by the tycoons of big banking and big business to the period 1880 to 1933 was of extraordinary complexity, one business uh, fife being built on another, both being allied with semi-independent associates. The whole rearing upward into two pinnacles of economic and financial power, of which one centered in New York was headed by J.P. Morgan and Company, and the other in Ohio was headed by the Rockefeller family. By 1930, these 200 largest corporations held 49.2% of the assets of all 40,000 corporations in the country. That's the U.S. In fact, in 1931, corporation American Telephone and Telegraph, controlled by Morgan, had greater assets than the total wealth in 21 states of the Union. The influence of these business leaders was so great that the Morgan and Rockefeller groups acting together, or even Morgan acting alone, could have wrecked the economic system of the country. Actually, they did it three, three times in the later 1800s. They, they, they basically got together, crashed the economy, uh, bought up everything that was real business for peanuts, and consolidated them into corporations. And this following extract from Tragedy and Hope shows a view of war different from the normal mind. The agrarian discontent, the growth of monopolies, the oppression of labor, and the excesses of Wall Street financiers made the country very restless in looking about for some issue which would distract public discontent from domestic economic issues. What better solution than a crisis in foreign affairs? Cleveland had stumbled upon this alternative more or less accidentally in 1895 when he stirred up a controversy with Great Britain over Venezuela. The great opportunity, however, came with the Cuban revolt against Spain in 1895. While the yellow press, led by William Randolph Hearst, roused public opinion, Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt plotted how they could best get the United States into the fracas. Uh, They got the excuse they needed when the American battleship Maine was sunk by a mysterious explosion in Havana Harbor in February 1898. By the way, they actually found the Maine and found it blew up from within in its engine room. In two months, the United States declared war on Spain to fight for Cuban independence. The resulting victory revealed the United States as a world naval power, established as an imperialist power with possessions in Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and whetted some appetites for imperialist glory. 
The last extract was taken from near the end of the book on page 950, and it sums up the situation we're caught in and shows the highly respected historian's point uh, viewpoint on it. By the way, it quickly took these from the records of the Council on Foreign Relations. They have their own private public uh, history library for themselves, on themselves. It says there does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network. It doesn't mean they're actually English. It means they live in England and in and the east coast of the U.S., which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the Communist Act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years and was permitted to, for two years in the early 1960s to examine papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. And I read a part the other night from that. I've objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, notably to the belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. And then there's more and more and more stuff about that, you see. But let's go into President Wilson's book, you see, because he loved to talk. He, in fact, he used to put people to sleep at the table by talking, uh, especially about himself. But anyway, he was a good front man. And he wrote the book, uh, The New Freedom, that George Bush quoted when he gave it to America. He was given a new definition of a new freedom. And the contents are the old order changeth. He's talking about going from an old system of independence and independent people to all working together on a big enterprise for, you know, you know the banks. Uh, what is progress, he says. Then, uh, chapter 3, free, uh, free men need no guardians. Life comes from the soil, uh, the parliament of the people. That was for the world parliament. He led it for the League of Nations. Let there be lights. The tariff protection or special privileges. He wanted to go into the British idea of free trade and amalgamation of the Americas. They called it the Pan-American Union. And Britain was to do the same with the European Union. Monopoly or opportunity, which was want to think that we should encourage monopolies and actually see them as opportunities. Uh, benevolence or justice, the way to resume is to resume. The emancipation of business, he wanted to give them the big boys, of course, not for small business, but the big boys, the monopolies, more powers in the world and in their country. And then the liberation of a people's vital energies. That's so you could all work in factories. And the first part is that the old order changeth. So the, he goes through the ideas of the old system won't work anymore. This is a new America, he says. He says, we're in the presence of a new organization of society. Our life has broken away from the past. The life of America is not the life that it was 20 years ago. It's not the life that it was 10 years ago. We've changed our economic conditions absolutely from top to bottom because the big bankers took over. And with our economic society, the organization of our life, the old political formulas do not fit the present problems. They read now like documents taken out of a forgotten age. He was talking about scrapping the Constitution, you understand. The older cries sound as if they belong to a past age which men have almost forgotten. The things which used to be put into the party platforms of ten years ago would sound antiquated if put into a platform now. We're facing the necessity of fitting a new social organization, as we did once fit the old organization, to the happiness and prosperity of the great body of citizens. For we're conscious that the new order of society has not been made to fit and provide the convenience or prosperity of the average man. 
The life of the nation has grown infinitely varied. It does not center now upon questions um, of governmental structure or of the distribution of governmental powers. It centers upon questions of the very structure and operation of society itself. See, you're going from individualization, and what you don't do is, is yourselves as individuals, to the organized society. That was a big idea that came out of, of England and the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Milner Society. And that's what he's telling you. He said, of which government is only the instrument. Our development has run so fast and so far along the lines sketched in the earlier days of the constitutional definition, has so crossed and interlaced those lines, has piled upon them such novel structures of trust and combination, has elaborated within them a life so manifold, so full of forces which transcend the boundaries of the country itself and fill the eyes of the world, that a a new nation seems to have been created which the old formulas do not fit or afford a vital interpretation of. We've come upon a very different age from that before us. We've come upon an age when we do not do business in the way in which we used to do business, when we do not carry on any of the operations of manufacture, sale, transportation, or communication as men used to carry them on. There's a sense in which in our day the individual has been submerged. In most parts of our country, men work not for themselves, not as partners in the old ways which they used to, but generally as employees. He's pushing the employee culture, actually, employees in the big uh, corporations and factories are all around. That's what he's pushing, you see, and all working together, this great endeavor to all work together for the better people who know better, you see. And that's what his whole book basically is about. And he, he worked, he did that book obviously, um, hand in glove with uh, the Milner Group and Lord Grey, as he has contact with the British system. And it's well worth a read if you get a hold on it. It's, it's all propaganda, all of it, but it tells you how they're bringing this into a new system where corporations would employ many thousands of people and and be sort of benevolent dictators over their people who work for them, in a sense. So that was what... And then it also wanted to bring down the tariffs of protection uh, and allow the country to be flooded with competition. He said, you don't need to fear competition, because it was in for the free trade idea that Britain was already pushing and had been for a while, the free trade idea, you see. So... You think you're living through the changes now? Well, you are, but it was, it was redesigned a long time ago, and you have been for over a hundred years. In fact, Quigley said that these guys were the guys who gave you the main wars that you've lived through. He also said uh, that they'd already been running the presidents of the United States for 60 years, and he wrote his book, Tragedy and Hope, in 1966. He said, all parties, he says. It doesn't matter the party that you vote for. And remember, too, the elite themselves, even though they will bring on disasters like world wars or oil slicks or whatever else it happens to be, have already prepared for themselves their own survival. Uh, as you'll even see in their disaster movies, they give lottos and, and you can pick a stick or whatever to see if you can get in there if you're one of the ordinary people at the bottom. But for themselves, they've, they've got them all designed that they, they have to survive in their pre-made underground cities and all the rest of it while you perish. They always have these contingency plans right down through the last hundred odd years for themselves. I remember one of the first ones that you showed that in was a movie, it was called uh, Deep Impact, where an asteroid comes in. This is before they came up with the global warming, 
And at the end, all the scientific elite are the ones who, who are you know, destined to survive because they were brighter and they need them for a new future. They'd get into the underground cities, but they gave a few lotto extra seats for the ordinary people. And the rest of them just had to take their fate on the surface and get smashed to smithereens. These are all predictive programming, and folk don't even know it. As I said yesterday, you're, all, you're a composite. Most folk out there are composites of their indoctrination. All the different composites that, that you've got from much music and the movies and what you think is your generation, and you're a composite. Right down to what you wear, how you behave, how you behave. Uh, and how many abortions you've had. Everything else is literally put into your head and how much time, many times you get the venereal disease as well, which you don't want to talk about in these sex lectures, do they? Have you noticed that? They don't want to talk about them because they don't want the public to know how bad it is. <laughs> A little shot of this penicillin will clear, clear this up, honestly. Really? Oh, really? Have you seen the damage it's already done? Hmm? Uh, well, it doesn't matter. You know something, it's best not to get frustrated because you cannot tell a public that literally are ignorant of all of this stuff. You can't tell a public. You would realize, as I said last night, the dead are the dead. And accept that. Just accept it. It's a little article here about civil aviation. Now, I read an article a year ago from, from the Minister of Transportation in Britain. The minister, as they call him, the politician in charge of it, said that they were putting taxes on air travel to discourage the ordinary people from traveling. That ties in with Agenda 21, where you're going to have essential transportation only. That's on ground and in air. That's still on the go, Agenda 21. And it's been worked into your very neighborhood and your, your local area. I read from that last night, some parts of it. But this article here is from Avian News. Uh, E-A, E-A, or A-E-A, I should say, uh, enlightens contradictions about German tax on airlines tickets. Brussels, Belgium. They discourage passengers and at the same time they want pouring money into the treasury. And they go into this discouraging travel through high taxation. Back with more after these messages. It's Agenda 21, folks. Long before global warming came along. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, reading from Avian News. Says here in the world of George Orwell's 1984, the world doublethink was used to describe the holding simultaneously of two mutually exclusive beliefs. The German Chancellor's proposal to levy an environmental tax on passengers at German airports to help close the budget deficit is truly Orwellian in its contradictions, according to the Association of European Airlines. The tax is supposed to help the environment by discouraging people from flying, said AEA Secretary General Ulrich Schultz. Strathos, while at the same time pouring billions, a billion euros into the treasury. But if passenger flies and pays the tax, he's impacting the environment. If he doesn't fly, the treasury doesn't get his money. A classic example of doublethink. Germany is the world's second largest exporting nation and exports account for half the national GDP. 
The same government is proposing the tax just months ago was highlighting the contribution of the airline sector to its own economic recovery program. The tax will hit consumers for German products visiting their suppliers and salesmen from German companies visiting their customers, said the, the Secretary General. Anything which makes travel more expensive makes trade more expensive and so holds up economic recovery. National economics will soon be seeing in their quarterly figures what happens to the country's accounts when air transport is interrupted, as it was during the Icelandic volcano eruption, which was a non-event, really. It was so they could have that big NATO exercise with a very advanced equipment for airstrikes and so on. But the greatest losers will be ordinary German citizens hit hard in the pocket. Well, they're putting that on everywhere. Getting back to, by the way, to this uh, massive oil slick that they released, and I say released because it was done intentionally, I have no doubt on that. It just happened at the right time to push all the, the, the Obama-backed uh, uh, environmental taxes and propo- propositions through. You've got to go into the history of that area. There was a movie put out years ago before Katrina even hit, put out by the Rhodes Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, another disaster movie where uh, that, that area was hit hard by tsunamis, and it showed you all through the people, move, thousands of folk moving up to, out of the state, getting away from the state, and returning back to its natural habitat. And the message all through it was, man brought this on himself, and there'll be others moving from the coast. Uh, then you go into the Agenda 21 and other similar spin-offs from the United Nations. They want everyone moved from the coast. They said that 20 years ago. I read the articles on the air a few years back. And what will that do when they get you all off the coasts? They'll cram you in even more tightly to the cities to really bring, really bring home the impact that you're overpopulated, whereas before you weren't, you see. Now that you're all off the coastlines and crammed together, you'll definitely be overpopulated, it'll seem. And that's what they want. Everyone off the coastlines eventually. That is the agenda. One way or another. One way or another, anything, whatever it takes, then justifies the means. And what a beauty this oil slick is. You can't believe it. The guys who inspected this whole thing and knew it wasn't right took off two hours before the thing blew up. They got off the rig and it blew up. Right on cue. They took every shortcut we're told, just screw-ups, you see. It's got to be screw-ups. It just it wasn't intentional. No, no, no. Every shortcut in the book they took with the, with the deepest thing they'd ever tried drilling in, which is nonsensical. It makes no sense whatsoever, unless you want that to happen. But once you sign, as I say, the big, massive, world-changing treaties, especially in America, or for the Americas, I should say, they'll be plugged in no time. And then they'll set off the bacteria that kills them all off and so on and bring it back to what it was. But they'll move all the folk off eventually. One way or another, you'll get moved off into the into the strife-ridden cities. From myself in Hamish, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.